What did you have in place when you decided to launch? Myself. Um, <laughs> I had a an engineering and design agency that I paid $5,000 to build the initial website. And I had created a couple weeks worth of content. So it was just content. And actually, the initial strategy was, okay, I'm going to make enough content to create, you know, enough engagement that people come back to my site. And then I'm going to build apps in all these different categories, wedding, food, home, and create utility services in these categories and then redirect them to download the apps. And so the content was just part of the funnel. What happened was, like, people just started really liking the content. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, we're talking to one of the women behind the largest digital media companies for women, Britain Co. Britt Morin made her way to Silicon Valley by, get this, answering a Craigslist ad to work at Apple. She's also worked at Google. She was one of the original creators of Google Maps. And she launched this lifestyle site less than seven years ago, and now today is reaching over 175 million people. So how did she do it? Here's my conversation with Britt Morin. Britt Morin, welcome to No Limits. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you with us. So you're the founder of Britain Co. You've raised over $40 million for the company now, six years old, uh, $125 million yeah, women. People, yeah. Women are using yeah, mostly that's like ninety five percent women. I mean the the like five guys that come to the site every <laughs> every month. Um, yeah, it's a it's very female oriented. So for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with it, explain what Britain Co. does. Sure. So we define ourselves as a digital media company, but are, we're a lot more than that. And I actually started this, after, I can go into the story later, but after years of working in tech and watching social media rise and uh, realizing that adult women these days largely don't believe they're creative and don't know how to do many things that our moms and our grandmas used to do. So it started as kind of a how-to oriented community for millennial women. And, and what we learned was outside of creativity and crafting and cooking and all of those domestic skills. Women also want to learn how to invest and do other things in life. So I, I like to call it a, the how-to guide for women in their 20s and 30s. And um, and so it is. It's everything from tech to domestic skills and everything else in between. And you mentioned your background. So you worked for Google. Yep. You worked for Apple. Yep. I read that with Apple, you answered a Craigslist ad. <laughs> is that true? I did. I didn't think it was real because, you know, the Apple brand is so premium <laughs> that they would be advertising for jobs what on Craigslist. What kind of job was this with like, Apple? And it was an L- it was an L.A. Craigslist because, ironically, I was considering taking a job at the Jimmy Kimmel show back in 04, I think this was. Um and so I was looking at Craigslist LA, really wanting to work in the entertainment industry, but I was obsessed with tech. I just didn't think that there would be an opportunity to get into Silicon Valley. And so when I saw Apple advertising for an iTunes position, um, that became instantly intriguing to me. 
and you got the job. Yeah. So um, it was in Silicon Valley. They were just looking, I think, in the L.A. industry for people that would be interested in music. <laughs> but I was in Texas. So I was interested in country music. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, iTunes. Um, I worked within that group when it was um, just music. No, no apps, no movies, no TV shows. There was no phone. It was still kind of hard to sell iPods to people. And um and it was really interesting to be at Apple during that time period. I feel like the whole mobile revolution kicked off during my time there. And then I hopped over to Google right after that. What was the biggest learning at Apple in that moment in time? Well, it was, you know, definitely the Steve Jobs era. Um, and what I learned was he can sometimes be full of BS because I at an all hands asked him, are we ever going to make a phone? Because it was rumored in the press. And he said, absolutely not. We would never compromise the quality of an iPod, a camera and a telephone uh, by putting it all in one device. And six months later, the phone was launched. So, wow. Yeah. So he had his game face on, you think? <laughs> I think so, which was so different at Google. When I started working at Google, there's literally an internal Google like directory where you can search any project name, anything that's about to launch in the next year. You can get all the details on it, read meeting notes from any team's meetings. Like Everything was fully transparent. And at Apple, you could get fired for telling the person next to you what you were working on. It was totally secret and closed. So totally different cultures uh, at Apple and Google, but it was very exciting at both. So you're at Google mm-hmm. and you decide you want to launch this company. Well, th- there was some steps in between. So I started on Google Maps, which was sort of a funny. Um, How did that happen? <laughs> it was just the the open position uh, within. And you just really wanted to get to Google. Team. Yeah. And, and um, you know, our biggest launch was driving directions and um, Google Maps for mobile. And, you know, so it was a cool time to be working on that product. We uh, overcame MapQuest as the number one mapping product in America. So it was back in those days. And then Search, which was the Bible of Google, which was really exciting to work on. And then we acquired YouTube and I was asked to join that team, which was so interesting to me because it was millennials largely using the YouTube platform creating content in their bedrooms for very little cost and amassing millions of followers. But I was here I was, this like young girl in her 20s, looking at on one side what was happening with YouTube and then like the traditional media world, which was amazing premium content, what largely wasn't resonating with millennials and was definitely not digitizing itself as quickly as it should. And And that's what gave me the motivation to think about what does a premium content community look like that is geared towards women? Because that was me. And and then, you know, after taking a little time off after Google, I realized this trend of the fact that women don't believe they're creative people. And like when we were five-year-old girls, you gave us like some Legos or some Play-Doh or some like paper dolls and we would go to town and and now we're 25 and 30 and we have no idea how to put up wallpaper we don't like know if our scrambled eggs are like the right way to make scrambled eggs and i'm definitely not going to put that on instagram because it might be wrong and and so it it just sucks that like that's what we turned into and it just felt like we needed to reimagine what creative confidence looked like for adult women. And and so I really rooted around that. And that's where it started to make sense. Like, oh, that's the media community that I could build and, and actually be on media. Maybe there's an education component. Maybe there's a merchandising component. How do we get these women off their phones and off their screens and into the real world? And so that's where it all came from. And and the idea of me putting myself into it for both like name and face was very um 
tough for me to stomach because I've never been I, I was working at Google and Apple like I was not on camera I was not living in LA living <laughs> trying to be like an actress or anything were people saying to you you should do the YouTube star thing were, were people pushing you in that direction well because I had come out of YouTube that's and that's literally what made me think like oh my gosh like these brands that try to get on YouTube and just launch you know ABC on YouTube like it's not as compelling as Jimmy Kimmel's channel, right? Um, and so to be an authentic brand these days, you have to be human and you have to have that story. And the founder, um, you know, 100 years ago was always was Walmart, Sam Walton, was Rockefeller and Hershey's. And it was named after people. And that's what made that authentic community start from the beginning. So I decided like, oh my gosh, I have, I don't really want to, but I'm going to try <laughs> to put myself out there and take the like online bullying and, and everything else of people calling me vain and like trying to, you know, just become a celebrity. But the reality was like, I was the girl I wanted to reach and there's no better way to do that than to, to be her and talk to these women out there who are just like me. You mentioned you took some time off after Google. So did you leave Google with the intention of figuring out what the next thing was? Was it what was the thinking around that decision to leave Google? So I had definitely seen the opportunity for media, but I I didn't really know anything about media. So I was keeping that in like the back seat. But I really wanted to start a company. I had always, you know, from the time I was little, I've been very entrepreneurial. I was like Girl Scout cookie seller of the year. I did all the fam, president of all the classes, captains of the soccer team. How many Girl Scout cookies you sold? Like a lot. I don't know though. Today's Girl Scouts are selling like thirty thousand boxes, which isn't because they have digital tools, right? Exactly. Yeah, we. I had a handicap. Um. So, um. But I've I've always wanted to, and and I actually really truly believe that women should start businesses when they're young, um, rather than wait. And anyone should start a business when they're young. But like there's just less risk, right? Um, And you learn so much. Like I got my MBA starting a business, not by like going to business school. Um, So I was 25 and I was like, I'm going to do this. Were you unhappy at Google? No. And if anything, I knew that I was, I had enough confidence myself that I could come back to Google if it didn't work. I had saved it up up in about six months of like uh, lifetime savings that I could live off of. and yeah, it it I actually was on the track to starting a different company. It was more of a health oriented startup because I didn't think that like I, I knew how to monetize the media side of this all the right way. I hadn't had the epiphany about creativity and women in their 20s and 30s yet. Um, and I just thought that was a hobby. Like I was starting to get into it. it as like my moonlighting, I was getting married and started making everything for my wedding and putting it on my blog and just was like, oh, this is a fun side thing that I'm doing. And then I started to get a little bit of a following doing that. And like, it's still a side thing. It's not a real business. Um, And after my wedding, I had like a real talk with a couple girlfriends and my husband who had been to the wedding. And like this wedding was, I spent too much time on it, but it was, um, everything was handmade. It was like, colorful I, I don't know my flowers were handmade like I didn't have any real flowers they were all handmade wooden fl- like it was insane. how much time went into that um, is I don't want to share how much time <laughs> <laughs> and you did the whole thing I did the whole thing and um but I had so much fun doing it and and I all these women were asking questions like how did I make those flowers and like they wanted to do that and I created a digital design um 
in, in Illustrator for a pattern that then I exported onto fabric and then I sewed my husband's tie for the wedding, like things like that. What but did his tie look like? It was just like our theme was Pixel Cowboy because he's from Montana and I'm from Texas, but we both met working in tech. So, and, and we got married in Jackson Hole. So his tie was like little 8-bit pixels that were colorful and things like that. If you have a picture, will you share it yeah. with us? And then we'll put it on Instagram yeah. when this episode runs so people can see a couple <laughs> totally. of pictures of the wedding that you created. Yeah, Obviously, technology is really important to all of this. And I think that's what's one, one of the things that I think is is really interesting and important about your story for our listeners is there's the two components. There's the creativity, but none of it would be possible Without the technology, yeah. you have somewhat of a technology background mm-hmm. from school in Austin. Yeah, um, that that's the whole reason I wanted to go to Silicon Valley in the first place. I started becoming fascinated with the Internet as a you know preteen, a teenager. I was part of that kind of 90s generation that was on AIM all the time and downloading illegal music. And so um, <laughs> I decided to take um, computer science classes in high school. I ended up taking a lot of AP courses and I knew that I couldn't learn more about technology in college um, in a way that I could learn it just working in Silicon Valley. And so I actually chose my school, the University of Texas, because it was the one place I could test out of the most hours so that I could fast track through college and just go to California. And um my friends said I was crazy because who wants to test out of almost two years of school? <laughs> like college are the best years of your life. But do you ever regret it? No. I mean, also I was paying my way through school. So I was like, this is definitely the better financial decision. So you decide you're going to launch. What mm-hmm. did you have in place when you decided to launch? Myself. Um, <laughs> I had a an engineering and design agency that I paid $5,000 to build the initial website. And I had created a couple weeks worth of content. So it was just content. And actually, the initial strategy was, okay, I'm going to make enough content to create, you know, enough engagement that people come back to my site. And then I'm going to build apps in all these different categories, wedding, food, home, and create utility services in these categories and then redirect them to download the apps. And so the content was just part of the funnel. What happened was, like people just started really liking the content. And um, how did you get people to come in the first place and see what you were building? Like I said, I had a, a little bit of a social following and that blog was starting to become, more, it was like a Tumblr blog, it was starting to become more popular. And I was really early on Pinterest. I was, I just wholeheartedly believed in that platform when I saw it. And it became a huge platform for me personally and now for Brit & Co, where we're literally one of the top publishers, if not the top, on the platform, reaching about half of their audience every month. Um, because it's it is it's the home, it's the food, it's crafts, it's like all the things that we love to do. It's mostly female. And and so I just started putting my content onto some of these early social networking sites and and I really did believe in social media as a distribution channel rather than just putting up display ads on a website and hoping that people would find it. Um, and that's really done well for us. It was luck, but I didn't know I didn't know a lot of that going into it. Like I said, I'd never worked in the media business before. So I was just seeing the trends from the tech world. And I was like, oh, social media is obviously the first place I'm going to launch all my content, a YouTube channel, a Pinterest channel. And if they come to my website, cool. That's How long was it before you started making money? I made money early. I um yeah, someone told me a good piece of advice which was just like 
don't wait to hire a sales team. Like, don't wait to start charging people to be on your site. So, I mean, it wasn't a lot in the first year, but it was six figures in the first year. Um, so that was good. And that gave me enough traction to raise a seed round of financing and hire a little mini team. And the second year, I think we like got into seven figures for the first. So it grew pretty quickly and, and the audience grew pretty quickly, which was great. And um, it was still those first two years, though, were probably the hardest. You know, every day you're just wondering, like, if you matter <laughs> and if like people are paying attention and if this idea was too contrarian, putting myself, putting my name in the brand. Oh, my gosh. Like the venture capitalists thought that was the craziest thing. They um, did. Yeah. I mean, everyone asked me what happened if I got hit by a bus. Um, like, does the company just fade away? <laughs> like, it's too risky for them. They can't invest in it because there's a person in it. If I decide to leave the company, blah, 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 blah. And now, fast forward, it's like now the like most defensible IP that we have <laughs> that like it's the thing that makes us different from everyone else. And like we can leverage um, the brand on television and on books and all these things because there's a real human attached to it. And our community knows me. And so it, it just creates a, a bond that's different from, a, you know, any other brand. So I don't know the you know, I've learned now in six years that people can be a little bit, you know, back and forth on their thoughts about where the industry is heading. And, and I just have to keep doing what feels right to me. And what I know about this audience um, is, is I think more than what a large, like a 60 year old <laughs> male venture capitalist knows about this audience. So keep following my gut um, and the rest will come. We've talked about before here on no limits about how little uh, the amount of venture capital dollars actually end up going to female-backed businesses. I'm hopeful that that's starting to change. But when you first started and you were sharing this idea with the venture capital community, and this is an idea largely for women, what was the reaction? More No Limits after this quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and start here. When you first started and you were sharing this idea with the venture capital community, and this is an idea largely for women, what was the reaction? Um, this is what they said. They said, oh, interesting. I'm going to go ask my wife about this or ask my daughter about this and see if she likes it. And and so How it, was especially hard. it was especially hard in the early days when you don't have tons of data and tons of growth metrics to show pretty charts. They have to rely on the idea and the team. I mean, that's what a lot of seed um, venture capitalists are looking for. And so I felt like that was already putting me at a lower rung on the totem pole in terms of the opportunity to get funding. As we approached our Series A and Series B, I couldn't I couldn't make that same argument because the data was going up and to the right, right? So 
I was trying to show them, look, we have revenue and we're growing 100% year over year. And like our audience is really engaged with what we're doing and these new partners have come in and so on and so forth. So um, once you have enough data, it's hard to refute a good business opportunity. Then it becomes more about can you actually scale it to be a multi-billion dollar business? Can um, Is it defensible? Um, where is this industry going? And, and larger, more macro questions. When you think about scaling Britain Co., how do you see the future? Well, we've always been a pretty diversified brand. And that's why when I started this conversation with you, I said, I guess you could call us a media company because <laughs> we really are. We're multiple things to different people. Um First, we are a media company. We produce hundreds of pieces of content every day all over the Internet. Um, Beyond that, though, we've launched an education business. We have over 100 online classes that women pay to take. It's a direct-to-consumer business. They are um, offering skills ranging from coding to calligraphy, Um, even things like cake decorating and painting and how to start a business. Because today's millennial woman is very diverse herself. Like she wants to grow uh, on the career ladder and maybe she wants to come home and learn how to knit a blanket. And that's totally cool. I think this is the first generation that's been able to say that they like to do both of those things. Beyond the classes, we also have merchandising. Um, So we have now launched four different collections for Target stores nationwide. We've done other types of product collaborations and more to come soon. Um, And we have been hosting these different types of experiential pop-ups and festivals and conferences for the last five years where we literally see like ten to 15,000 women come out at a time to one of these events. Um, So there's ticket sales and all kinds of things that go into that. And and so this is another thing that venture capitalists are like, whoa, you're not focused. Um, you need to pick one thing and do it well. And, and my response is this generation doesn't work like that. You know, they they respond to a brand, you know, and they want that brand to help them in different facets of their life. And they want to be able to connect with that brand online, on television, in books, like offline at events with real community members and people. And so I just I think that what we're doing is very different from anyone else in the market. Like literally, we don't have any direct competition, if you think about it that way. Um, When you look at one of those vectors individually, like media, yeah, sure, there's like women's lifestyle brands. Um, But um, that plus the human IP that's gone into the Brit and now the co, which is a group of women we're sort of starting to build up. um, It is different. It's very different than anything else out there. You mentioned along the way early on thinking, hello, is this working? And, And I know that feeling among entrepreneurs when you start things, there is often this doubt that can creep in. Mm -hmm. When you are faced with that, how do you address it? Uh, I just had to wake up and keep going. I think the hardest thing is um, that I'm such a perfectionist. I'm afraid, you know, I've learned how to be okay with failing because as an entrepreneur, you fail every day, multiple times a day. But but in the early days, you know, I didn't want to upset anybody. So I didn't want my five employees that I like worked so hard to hire to give up their own faith on the company and um, or to like get the company a position where we would have to let them go because we would have to shut it down. And and so you're just full of worry all day, every day. And I think that's the biggest thing for an early entrepreneur that you're just you're just never sure what, how it's going to plan out. And you hold yourself personally accountable for anything that could go wrong. So 
I couldn't do anything more than just wake up every day and go into the office and smile and try to convince everybody that it was all going to work. It was all going to be okay. And I think, you know, the fake it till you make it thing is true. (laughs) Like I wasn't sure internally if it was all going to work, but I had to put on the face and put on the, you know, when you're pitching an investor or pitching a partner, you are the hottest thing they've ever seen. So they have to work with you. In those meetings, if they say to you something and in your head there is a question or it's not a guaranteed success, do you say that or is it just like, nope, I'm going to keep selling this thing until the end of this conversation? You keep selling the thing. Yeah. Yeah. We have a listener who emailed me and she wrote me a very thoughtful note about listening to the podcast, Jessica Siliento. And she said, okay, Love what you're doing, but do you know what your guests almost never touch on? So here is Jessica's question. No entrepreneur or CEO has told me who is picking up their children from the bus stop at 3 p.m. Uh-huh. So how do you handle that part? Right? Yeah, I, I, I especially think that more female entrepreneurs and CEOs need to attack this question publicly. And we're afraid to and ashamed to because the answer is we need help. Like it's the only way to make it happen. I have a nanny um, who helps me like take care of my children during the day. I have, I have two toddlers. I have a three-year-old and an almost two-year-old. And one of them's in school for four hours a day and one of them's not. And so there's no way I could do it without somebody helping. Um, my husband works as well. So so that's one thing. And then, you know, um, I'm out the door by five every day and I'm home with those kids and like falling on the ground playing, you know, with cars and trains because they're boys. Um, (laughs) But but like as soon as I get home, putting them to bed every night, having dinner with my husband for the hour after that and then getting back online and finishing up the day's work. And and it's a hard schedule because I actually don't have much of a social life anymore. But but that's the only way I can prioritize my company, my kids and my husband all in a day's work. And the one treat I give myself every week um, that I found life-changing is a morning babysitter on one of the weekend days that's just you know two or three hours um, where I can either sleep in or go to a workout class or go to breakfast with my husband you know and have some like one-on-one time without the kids crazily running around and and that's been uh, it's just a special time for me to know that I have that built in every week um, and if I need it for myself, that's great. If I need it for something else, uh, even a friend brunch, you know, I can do that too. So we have to talk about it more though. Mm-hmm. I, and I almost, you know, think that like more companies and businesses should offer like stipends for a female CEO to have like a nanny stipend or childcare stipend or something like that. Cause there's no other way to do it. I mean, I travel almost every week of the year, mm-hmm. um, in this industry, I have to be in New York and LA and San Francisco all the time. And, and so sometimes I need more babysitting help than at nights when my husband can't be home with the kittens. It's not fair that, you know, I have, I'm personally paying that all the time. And, and so I do think there should be some sort of conversation around that more publicly. Does so your company fe- do anything differently with benefits or stipends for women employees? We have, um, well, so we have no vacation policy. If you ever want to take a day off, if you want to leave the office early, you don't have to, you know, check if you have enough days left. Um, it's fine. And as long as you're getting your work done, then it's great. So that's one thing. We have a very 
a nice maternity leave plan and paternity leave, but maternity is 12 weeks plus an additional four weeks if you want to take the full 16. And I know a lot of women that I think get like six, which seems crazy to me. Um, I've always wanted to build like a childcare facility or something like that in the offices. I think Patagonia does that. Um, I don't think we're like big enough yet to make that a thing. I don't think there's enough children. And, and, and I have heard things about like, well, then you think about your child more during the day and is it distracting actually? So, but maybe sometime down the road, we should do something like that. When I was at Google, they had a preschool like on campus of Google, which at the time seemed crazy, but I'm now understanding why that could be valuable. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? How to trust your gut. You know, starting a company at 25, having never really managed a ton of people before, much less raise money from venture capitalists, much less put myself out there publicly. I had to believe that what I was doing was right and that it was a good thing for people and that um, at the end of the day, if it all fell apart, I would be proud of myself for what I accomplished. And so despite any negativity coming at me from any direction, that's been the light that's helped me through every day. Technology right now, as you know, is at this major tipping point. Facebook has been in the news weekly mm-hmm. uh, about this privacy question in Cambridge Analytica. Yep. Your background is in technology. Your husband started <laughs> at Facebook what do you think of all of this? Where Five years from now, mm-hmm. are we still going to be using Facebook every day? Is the company going to have to fundamentally change? I think there is a lot going on with the way that people are reimagining what a social network should be and taking the media out of social media, which is ironic, I think, coming from someone running a media company to say, but... To be honest, I feel like the fact that Facebook's entire infrastructure and business model is based on advertising is what has gotten them so deep into this problem. And if they weren't so um, obsessed with chasing big ad deals and collecting user data so that advertisers could target better and segment and so on, then they wouldn't be caught up in all of this. I do feel like there is an opportunity to reinvent the second generation of social networking. I feel like we've only been through one generation, which is all about, you know, bi-directional friendships and posting in a a feed and messaging. and, And we sort of have that down, right? And that's one model. And I think it can still work and play out and there's different use cases for it. But I do believe there's potentially a new model forming and that people are actively expressing interest in, which is a subscription-based social network, even at a dollar a month, that's built for the user to give you tools to control how you want to connect with people. And if that means that, for instance, I only want to be on Facebook or any social networking site 10 minutes a day because I don't want to be distracted with that for my whole day, I would want the app to literally lock me out after 10 minutes and say, like, you told me 10 minutes, (laughs) this is the best thing for you. A Facebook would never do that because they're incentivized to keep people on the platform longer so they can sell to advertisers more, right? And, And that makes total sense for that business model. So yes, I think there's an opportunity. I don't know if it's a replacement or an addition, but I I definitely understand the need for something new in social in particular to happen over the next five years. I like that. I like the idea of getting locked out after 10 minutes. (laughs) I didn't know social media week, and that was the one thing uh, that I could come up with. I I didn't want to completely go dark on social media. I just wanted to check in and check out, but be forced to check out. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? Uh, the, The worst advice I got early on was 
just to make it all about me and to be the celebrity and grow as big as I could under the Brit Boren brand. And um, it just sat, it just didn't sit well with me at all. I'm not that type of person. And even putting myself in the brand, like I've said, is uncomfortable still. And, and I've always believed that it was about the other women involved, you know, alongside me. And it wasn't just the Brit Boren show. And, and so, um, how did you respond? I mean, I hear yeah. your your hesitation. Mm-hmm. Did you respond with your hesitation at the time? The time, no. I mean, I was still. It was really early. It was you know just getting started, and I thought about it for a while, and I was like, maybe, maybe I should. And you know, then I don't have to build a massive company and like share equity and like get diluted and raise a ton of money, and I can just keep it going myself and. I can work for my house and maybe that's a good option. And the option of kind of being a social star, just being a social, yeah, YouTube celebrity, TV star, whatever. Um, it just it just didn't sit right with me. It wasn't the intention for what I wanted to build. I really wanted to build a community. And that was a community of teammates in the office, a community online, a community of other Brits, you know, within the co and, and it wasn't the vision. So it wasn't bad advice. It was a form of a business model, but I felt like it would have steered me in the wrong direction. Britt Morin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, the interview's over and you know what that means. It's time to feature one of you, our beloved listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is actually two entrepreneurs, two women, Shannon Evans and Misty Grant. They are the co-founders of Nailed It DIY Studio. They were nominated by Misty's sister, Amanda Duke. And what I really thought was interesting about their story is how they started. So they start selling at craft fairs. Then they're asked to do a workshop at a church and they realize, hey, this actually went pretty well. We could turn this into a business. And in her message, Amanda, who nominated them, wrote, I am overwhelmed with pride to watch my sister persevere through the ups and downs that come with being an entrepreneur as she continues to pursue her dream. So without further ado, here are Shannon Evans and Misty Grant to tell you their story. Hi, I'm Misty. And I'm Shannon. And we're the owners of Nailed It DIY Studio. We started this business about five years ago with a small table and big, big, big dreams. Big dreams. <laughs> and we've turned it into a national franchise. Absolutely. So we started with no capital. Everything that we had to go on was a lot of faith, a lot of passion, um, and profit. So eventually it led us to where we are now, a women-owned company, women-operated company. And we're able to inspire people through the experience that we now offer. People are either inspired to open their own Nailed It DIY franchise or they're inspired to make something awesome for their home. And they keep coming back. Yes. <laughs> Which is a good thing, right? Yes. So I know you want to know more about our story and follow our growth. So follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to share with you. Because we've nailed it. Have you? <laughs> Shannon and Misty, congratulations. I'm wishing you and Nailed It DIY Studio continued success. And remember, head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to see more of their story. Also, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits, you can send me that nomination. Or if you have career questions, you can also send them to me here as well. No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. A lot of you have been writing to me. I love it when you write to me, whether it's the challenges that you're facing in your careers or the big ideas you have. Hearing your stories is why we're doing this. Hearing from you that what we're building here at No Limits is resonating with you is 
nourishing to me. And it really makes me overjoyed and happy that the conversations that we're having here are really demystifying this crazy path that we're all on, trying to be successful, trying to be happy. Hopefully we are feeling successful and happy, but it's a really great thing when I get to hear from you. And for those of you who have been leaving us reviews, thank you so much. Sam R., for example, you wrote, I am very impressed with this podcast. I am not an avid podcast listener and have recently discovered No Limits and am pleasantly surprised that it entertains me. (laughs) Awesome. The guests are awesome and host Rebecca Jarvis leads the conversation in interesting and cool directions. Looking forward to more. Sam R., thank you for writing in. Um, I'm really glad that it surprisingly entertains you. That's great. We try to entertain as well as educate. Okay, as always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use the hashtag No Limits Podcast. And finally, a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week. Producer Taylor Dunn, editor Michelle Boncardo, research assistant Annie Osakwe, and the team at ABC Radio, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.